This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Welcome to Chronicles of Nania. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I am joined by the man who this show is named for. He is the resident stat nerd on Jets Twitter and, of course, at GangreenNation.com, Elite Sports New York, and at TurnOnTheJets.com. Mr. Michael Nania, what's going on, Michael? Not too much. Uh, we got a couple, only a couple days left until the uni- new uniforms and the new logo are finally revealed. So really pumped for that, and I'll be going to WrestleMania next week, so that should be pretty awesome. And obviously we got the draft in a couple of weeks, so April should be a pretty awesome month. Really a lot of things going on you know, with the Jets and you know a lot of other things too. So I'm excited for this month, and especially with the Jets and the new uniforms coming up in a couple of days. I'm, I'm going to go all out for that. I'm going to be... I'm probably going to use my HDMI cable, put this up on the big screen and watch this live, watch Eric Allen and his corny interviews with the uniforms and all that stuff. So it should be pretty awesome. <laughs> you got WrestleMania and Jersey Mania going on with the Mania family right now as we get ready for the big Jersey release on Thursday and WrestleMania coming up this weekend. A lot of pandemonium going on in the New Jersey area right now. Michael, there was a lot of pandemonium going on in New Jersey back in the mid to late 80s as well when Ken O'Brien was at the helm at quarterback. And I wanted to start there because you dug up a great retro stat involving Kenny O'Brien and his inability to rush for touchdowns. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously Ken O'Brien is a lot before my time. I wasn't even born when he was playing for the Jets, but it was interesting because yesterday a couple of couple guys brought up, like, they brought up to me that, you know, Ken O'Brien had this record that he, he's the all-time NFL leader for most passing touchdowns without a rushing touchdown. And they actually brought up initially that they thought it was Richard Todd who held that record. So I looked into it, and it actually turns out that Richard Todd is the Jets' all-time leader in rushing touchdowns for Jets quarterbacks. He's got 14 of those, so that's the all-time record for Jets quarterback. But Ken O'Brien is actually the guy who, who holds the record that they brought up. So 124 career passing or 128 career passing touchdowns. For Ken O'Brien, that is the most in NFL history without a single rushing touchdown. And he's got a comfortable lead, too. He's got a 49-touchdown lead over the guy in second place, who would be Joey Harrington, a former Lions quarterback in the early 2000s. So it's really a wild record. for. And obviously, like you brought up, you are talking, uh, talking to me earlier about what his skill set was. It really fits in with who he seemed to be as a player, more of a pocket quarterback, a guy who's not all that mobile. So it's just a wild record to be able to, he played in the NFL for, you know, a decade from 84 to 93. So to go that long, start over a hundred games in the league, not score once on the ground. And he's a pretty good player too, a good passer um, to have, the, he's got the second most passing touchdowns in the history of the Jets behind only Joe Namath, obviously. So, it's just a wild record for him to go that long and not score a single time on the ground. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. 
With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Kenny was a really solid quarterback. He had his shortcomings. He was a statue back there, and that led to him getting sacked. That and the fact that he would hold the ball way too long. Those were his two biggest flaws. And when you watch Ken O'Brien, you would notice if he had time to throw, he could pick defenses apart. There's that famous example, the 1986 game against the Miami Dolphins, the shootout, when he threw four touchdowns to Wesley Walker, including the game winner in overtime. Still one of the best Jets games of all time, and I think it's up on YouTube in its entirety. So for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, you can go ahead and watch it. Trust me, it's well worth your time. Dan Marino and Ken O'Brien at their absolute best going toe-to-toe toe head to head and funny thing Michael even though you didn't dig this stat up I'll throw it out there Ken O'Brien was six and five lifetime against Dan Marino so a little something to consider there the thing with O'Brien was at the time fans didn't really appreciate him because they were looking at the Miami Dolphins and watching Dan Marino and realizing that the Jets could have had him instead of Ken O'Brien but in retrospect the Jets were lucky to have O'Brien because they didn't have a quarterback anywhere near as good as him for at least another decade you could argue with Chad Pennington who was better but there wasn't a better quarterback that they drafted until 2000 with Chad Pennington and he didn't play until 2002 so that was one of those cases of don't know what you got till it's gone the one thing i'll say is though as we approach the draft and we think about the guys that the jets might draft at number three overall kenny would have had nightmares thinking about how to escape these guys because like i said he was a statue back there and would hold the ball and these guys wait for no man and i'm talking about players like quinn and williams and josh allen you dug up some interesting stats about them in their combine numbers right Yeah, so got some interesting numbers on what these two guys did in the combine. A couple of options for the Jets at three, obviously. I think I think these two guys are probably your top debate between Jets fans right now. If the Jets say three, do you take Quinton Williams if he's available, or do you take Josh Allen, who seems like he'll most likely be available at that third pick? So I think these have been the top two most mentioned names for the Jets at that third pick if they stay there. So both of them really had tremendous combines. In addition to what they show you on tape, their big production as pass rushers and just their overall games in college, they both had really great combines that back up the impressive athleticism that you see from them when you watch them play. So Quinton Williams, he put up a 483-40 time after weighing in at 303 pounds. So that is the fifth best 40 time for a 303-plus pound defensive player in combine history so really impressive explosion by Williams there at the combine and it's it's just what you see from him on tape constantly it's just the athleticism that he has for a guy that size with that much strength and then looking at Josh Allen what he did he really had a really good all-around combine so he weighs in over 260 pounds puts up a 40 of under 465 over 28 bench reps and he had over 17 sacks in his final college season so you combine that production over 17 I believe he had 17 and a half sacks in, in uh, last season at Kentucky. So all that production, his weight, the 40 at that weight, and his bench rep with his college production, the only guy to enter the draft in, in the history of the Combine since they started tracking these numbers, the only other player to enter the Combine with those numbers was Dwight Freeney. And obviously he had a tremendous career with the Colts, played over a decade there, had over 100 sacks in his career. So that's a really good comp for Allen. Uh, obviously Freeney, he played 11 years with the Colts, had 100 
107 and a half sacks with the Colts, 125 and a half sacks for his career. So really interesting comp there for Allen for the only other guy in the history of the combine with that combination of production and strength and athleticism and size as Allen is a guy who's probably going to be going to the Hall of Fame uh, one day is a Super Bowl all pro. Dwight Freeney had a great career with the Colts. So a couple of really interesting combine numbers for those two guys with Quinn Williams and Josh Allen, who both have really unique skill sets in terms of what they bring to the table athletically. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. It's funny, Michael, because what you hear about Quinn and Williams is that he's not a plus athlete. Meanwhile, he goes and does that at the Combine and kind of blows that perception out of the water. Everybody knows about his technique and his strength, but it seems like he's a lot quicker than people realize. And with Josh Allen, you're looking at a situation where everybody knew the athletic gifts that he had, but a 260-plus to be able to do that is pretty off-the-charts amazing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like I said, and I'll just go over the criteria again, you know, in case I didn't make it that clear the first time. So, Allen's one of only two players in the history of the combine to weigh in at 260 plus, run the 40 and under 465, put up 20 plus bench reps, and have over 17 sacks in his final college season going into the draft. Him and uh, Dwight Freeney are the only two guys to do that. So, it's, it's really cool when you see comps like this where a guy not only does something unique, but the only other players who did do it, or, you know, in this case, the only one player who's done it are future Hall of Fame players, you know, perennial All-Pros, Pro Bowlers, like Dwight Freeney is. So it's a really interesting comp there for Allen, and it's going to be interesting to see where he falls and if the Jets take him, because he, like, like we're bringing up here, his production was great, his combine is great, and you see it on tape. He's a really athletic guy. The upside is tremendous with him, but he also doesn't, he does have some flaws in his game that do seem to be overlooked, and for that reason, I do think he wouldn't be as great of a value pick as Quinton Williams at number three, because I just think the floor for Williams is a lot higher than it is for Josh Allen, but still, you look at what he does bring to the table. He has a lot of upside, one of the best ceilings in the draft, though I do think his floor is a little bit lower than some people uh, seem to realize, but you do look at things like this, just the way he's able to light up that combine, back up what he shows you on tape from an athleticism standpoint, and just the production that he had at Kentucky, especially in that final season, is really just a historic level and compares with some all-time greats, guys who had a great career. So it's going to be interesting to see where Allen falls because his ceiling is really, really high. Another guy who has some upside, although nowhere near as much upside as Quinnen Williams or Josh Allen, is Deontay Burnett. Deontay Burnett was undrafted. He wound up on the Jets, was on the practice squad for a while, then made it up to the main roster toward the end of the season last year. And we know about his connection with Sam Darnold because they went to USC together. And if you watch Darnold's film from USC... Deontay Burnett is all over the film. He's making a lot of great catches, and it's very clear that the two of them have a great rapport. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Burnett put up some pretty impressive statistics when he was given the chance last year, something that I think should give Jets fans great hope going into 2019. You took a deep dive into Deontay Burnett's 2018 season. What did you find? Yeah, so Burnett is really interesting because at the end of the day, you don't want to put too much stock into a guy who didn't have a you know a great season last year. He only caught ten passes 
for 143 yards in total last year. So that's not a guy who you want to bank on as a starter. And obviously the Jets aren't doing that. They went out and signed Jameson Crowder. They re-signed Quincy Nunwa, put the tender on Robbie Anderson. So those are your three starters at receiver right there, barring an unexpected trade. So Burnett isn't going to be a penciled-in starter, but he's still got a lot of really interesting upside with what he brings to the table. He's still only 21 years old. He's not going to turn 22 until October. He's the youngest wide receiver in the league to appear in a game last year. So he brings that upside to the table with his youth and his rawness. Obviously, like you mentioned, he's got that rapport with Sam Darnold, having played with him extensively in college and, you know, produced a lot with Sam Darnold. So he's got those two things to the table. And then what he did last year in the two games which he actually started and played extended time, the only two games he played over half of the snaps last year were the, the game at Chicago and the game in Week 17 at New England, and in those two games, he did some pretty special things. He uh, In both those games, he caught every single one of the targets thrown his way and surpassed 60 yards, and over the past three seasons, the only two game, the only two, only two players have had multiple games putting up over 60 receiving yards while catching every single target in their direction, and the only other guy to do that, other than Deontay Burnett, was Michael Thomas in 2016, who actually did it three times, so Again, that's just a really interesting comparison there, and obviously this is a really specific stat, and like I said, you don't want to put too much stock into it. At the end of the day, we're talking about a guy who only caught 10 passes last year, but it's still really interesting to see that in the only two games Burnett did get to you know, play over half the game and be featured in the offense, he did pretty well and did some things that have been really unique, and just, you just put him up against other 21-year-old rookies over the past two seasons, so in those two games, he did catch four passes uh getting those over 60 yards. So he had two games last year with four-plus catches and 60-plus yards. And over the past two years, he's one of only six 21-and-under rookie wide receivers to do that multiple times, along with Juju Smith-Schuster, DJ Moore, Chris Godwin, Kiki QT, and Christian Kirk. So that's a pretty good group of young receivers there, guys who seem like they all have really good futures in the league. So you look at what Burnett was able to do in those two games, which he got extended time. He did play really well, and he showed a really good chemistry with Darnold. I mean, we're talking about his experience, you know, playing with him in college at USC with Darnold, but it showed up when they got to play together. You saw in both those games, Darnold make those plays on the run, especially in that New England game. He had a couple of really impressive dimes, you know, just scrambling outside the pocket and finding Burnett over the top. And in that Chicago game as well, they had some really impressive connections in those two games. So you really saw that, you know, the rapport those two guys have show up on film when they played and the production from Burnett in those two games where he got to play extended time was really promising. So, you know, obviously Burnett isn't going to be a starter barring injuries or another trade or anything like that. Probably isn't going to be a penciled in starter to start off the season, but that doesn't mean he can't go out and seize that number four wide receiver role, be the top backup if someone else goes down and, you know, maybe be a part of this team, a key, you know, backup for a long time, that there's a lot of value to that. So he showed a lot of promise in his rookie season. And like we said, he's only 21 year old guy, still only 21. He'll be 21 throughout this offseason. So, you know, bounce off what he did last season, continue to show that connection with Sam Darnold and maybe establish himself as a key backup for this team for the next few years. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. 
Michael, since you mentioned that New England game, let's talk about that a little bit as it pertains to Sam Darnold, because he had a really brutal box score in that game. In fact, it was a box score that on paper was right on par with the terrible game that Bryce Petty had against New England in 2017. But this is a case where you can't just look at the numbers. You have to look at the tape because Darnold actually played a lot better than Bryce Petty did, didn't he? Yeah, and it was really interesting because, you know, it just came to mind like the Jets played Week 17 in New England in 2017, and they did it again this year. So I just want to look back at the numbers that both those guys put up in that game because, like you said, Donald's numbers really weren't that impressive when he played the Pats this year. 167 yards, no touchdowns, no picks, 74.6 passer rating, uh, under 6 yards per 10. So really ugly box score. But when you look back, like when you look at the film from that game, like I was talking about, you know, with his connection with Deontay Burnett, it seemed like he played better than that, even though he did have that fumble and the Jets only scored three points and got completely destroyed by New England. It's He had some really good plays in that game. And it was interesting because I looked back at the stats from the Week 17 game against New England in 2017, and Bryce Petty put up basically the same stat line. He had 232 yards, again, no touchdowns, no picks, and a 72.9 rating and about 60 yards per attempt. So basically the same numbers. So I was, interesting, uh, I was interested to compare, you know, what Donald did just looking at his, ta- uh, his tape against New England this year versus what Petty did last year in the same exact situation, Week 17 against the Pats in Foxborough. And you look at those two games side by side, just watching them play, and you wouldn't even imagine that these guys had the same stats because Donald this year, he had some, some of his best throws of the year in that Patriots game. He had two great throws to Deontay Burnett outside the numbers that were just beautifully touched. He had a wonderful dime down the sideline to Trent Cannon on a wheel route that he dropped. And Le'Veon Bell, hopefully he's going to catch those this year. But he threw a great dime to Trent Cannon that he dropped, which would have been a beautiful throw. And he had this really great throw on the run. I believe it was a uh, third down play in which he tossed up a a jump ball to Chris Herndon in the end zone, went right through his hands. Would have been a tough catch, but really was a great clutch throw by Darnold. But he had some phenomenal throws in that game. And he also had a huge, I believe, a 20-yard run or something like that earlier in the game, his longest run of the season. So he made some really good, impressive, you know, flat-out elite plays in that game. But you look at what Petty did with basically the same stat line a year ago. He was throwing design screen passes that gave him 10 yards. He had, you know, little tosses in front of the line that, you know, are more or less handoffs but count as passes because they're forward tosses. That gave him 10 yards. And he missed a bunch of throws in that game, just wildly inaccurate, just misses that Donald didn't have in the Patriots game, even though his numbers weren't that good. So I think this is a classic example of how the box scores, especially in small sample sizes, can lie to you because you look at, you just put on the tape of these two guys, and obviously overall, you know, Sam Donald is a lot better than Bryce Petty, but same exact situation. They put up very similar box scores, but you turn on the tape and watch them play. Sam Donald's just really better than Bryce Petty was. And I think in a lot of ways, Sam Donald did continue the momentum that he had in his first three games coming back from injury, you know, with the comeback against Buffalo, the two phenomenal games he played at home against Houston and Green Bay, two really good opponents, or at least playing against a great quarterback in Rodgers against Green Bay. But he played great in those first three games coming back from injury, and it kind of seemed like it stalled a little bit with that New England game since they got blown out. But in a lot of ways, I really think he did keep up that momentum because he showed some really impressive flashes throughout that game, even though it wasn't, you know, his best game in his own right. He did miss some throws, had that fumble. Like I mentioned, he's only fumbled the season. But in a lot of ways, I think he kept up that momentum with some really great throws. And I just think comparing these two guys' performances against New England in, that, in their Week 17 games over the past few years, I think it really embodies what Sam Darnold's rookie season was all about. I think a lot of times we make these arguments like, 
oh, this receiver, he plays with a bad quarterback. His numbers aren't as good as they should be because he didn't get to play with great passing. Or, you know, whatever the case may be, we will make these cases sometimes that, you know, a player is undersold by stats. And a lot of times I do think that, you know, those arguments aren't really justified, that a player more or less is as good as production says he is. So I think a lot of times we misuse that argument. But in the case of Darnold's rookie year, I think it really applies perfectly because you just look at, he just seemed to play a lot better than his number said he did. He was not one of the, he was not the second worst or third worst quarterback in the league last season. And you just look at the, the way the Jets played when he was out, scoring one touchdown on offense in the three games he missed. So I really think that this uh, Sam Darnold's rookie season is a legit case where you can make the argument that the box scores undersold him. And obviously he's a rookie, so we're expecting we weren't expecting a lot of production from him anyway. Rookie quarterbacks very rarely are above average players in their rookie seasons from a, statist- uh, from a statistical standpoint. So, of course, we're going to expect that second-year leap, and we weren't. We didn't have too high expectations for him. But still, at the end of the day, I think that this New England example really embodies that. Sam Darnold did get, wasn't really given a lot of favors by his teammates, and that was reflected in the box score. And it really underse- undersells how well he played throughout the season. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Michael, as I always like to say, you got to watch the film and then look at the advanced stats and compare the two. Sometimes they line up, sometimes they don't. But you can't just look at raw numbers. That is the most misleading thing you can possibly do. And that's pretty much what a lot of people that were bagging on Sam Darnold were doing. They were looking at the raw numbers. But I think that what you're saying right now proves exactly the point that Joe Blewett always makes, which is film don't lie because Bryce Petty did not have anywhere near as good of a game as Sam Darnold despite the box score. Yeah, and definitely because, and the argument isn't that Sam was good this year because he definitely had some really bad games. You look at the game at Cleveland, you know, at Miami, uh, and the the game at Jacksonville. Those three games were pretty bad, and the the best quarterbacks in the league don't have you know three really bad games like that. But he is a rookie after all, so the argument isn't that Donald was an above average quarterback this year because he wasn't. But I think it's more that. The numbers make him look like he was, you know, really bad this year. But you just look at the impact that he had. It was clearly a positive impact, you know, with what he was working with. He was doing a lot more than a 21-year-old rookie should be expected to do. So, again, like, it's not arguing that he was a pro bowler this year or even above average because he still did have some bad games. You know, a lot of throws he would have liked to have back. You know, struggles with the interceptions, but... Look at the way he finished the season and just the positive impact he had, how the team played when he was out versus when he came back, and just the way he was able to, at times, you know, in that Chicago game, uh, in, in some of the other games, but especially that one, where the team just was giving him zero help, but he still found ways to make some things happen, or at least give his teammates the opportunities to make things happen. So definitely is a, a really good case of the stats kind of underselling, especially with a few specific games, like the New England game. And also, I think, the Minnesota game, he had terrible stats in that game. I think he had like a 36 passer rating in that game, which looks awful and really tanks his overall season numbers. But that Vikings game, he played pretty decently. You know, he made some mistakes, but especially that first interception. But he had an interception in that game that was it should have been a first down pass. It just bounced off Sharon Peak's chest. And obviously, there was, that was the start of the Spencer Long snapping issues. He had some bad snaps in that one. And just it was an overall bad performance by the offensive line. So really those two games especially. I think that game against the Vikings at MetLife Stadium and the Week 17 game against the Pats in Foxborough, the stats really undersold him. And I think it really embodies just overall 
the fact that Darnold did have some games this year, I think a lot more so you saw the stats underselling him than overselling him. I think he really earned all the box score production that he had, and then that he actually performed a lot better than his overall numbers look. So, again, we'll see this season what he can do in this second year, which is usually the big year for quarterbacks to take that leap. So we'll see if he could really, you know, make that leap now that he does have some more help with Bell, Crowder, Assembly, and hopefully some more development from the younger guys on the team. So hopefully he does make that leap and it does reflect in the box score. And he is a no doubt top 10 or at least above average quarterback in this age 22 second season. But definitely his rookie year, I think there are a lot of cases where, you know, just using the numbers, to say that he was bad or, you know, he held the Jets back or he wasn't as the playman or, or farly or vastly inferior to Baker Mayfield. I think that the numbers really undersold him in a lot of ways. I think that's the case with Leonard Williams as well, especially as it pertains to sacks, because what you'll frequently hear is that Leonard Williams is a huge disappointment. He's not that good, because look at his sack numbers. They're so low. Look at the box scores. But if you watch Leonard Williams, and if you pay attention to the advanced metrics, you'll notice that he's actually a very good player. And I made this case on Twitter the other day, which, of course, you backed me up on. Leonard Williams may not be an elite player, but he's just below that. He's right in that Pro Bowl conversation most years, or he's going to be talent-wise. If you look at the advanced metrics and watch his film, again, not going to be putting him up there with the tippy-top players in the league. But if you want to talk about Pro Bowl discussion, he should be there most years. And you found some interesting metrics to prove this case. Yeah, so Leonard Williams is just a really, really unique case with just the way he's lined up his production over the past few years. So you look at what he's done in terms of producing, and you know, this is what Jets fans knock him a lot for, but I don't think it's deserved. But you look at what he's done in terms of his sacks versus his pressure and knockdown production, it's really, really a stark difference. He's Over the past two years, he's tied for 12th in the league in quarterback knockdowns with 45 of those and he's tied for 96th in sacks with seven of those. So that's a wild difference in just his ability to produce pressure but not finish it with sacks. And you compare him to the rest of the players in the league who have seven sacks or fewer over the past two seasons, Leo has almost twice as many quarterback knockdowns as a second-ranked player. That would be Vinnie Curry, who has 25, which is you know almost uh, half of Leonard Williams' 45. So it's, it's just a really unique case, and I think it really kind of shows, you know, it really captures the situation that Williams has been playing in over the past few seasons, what he does well, what he doesn't do too well, why he's good, why he's not elite. You know, at the end of the day, if he's only getting three and a half sacks a season, which is what he's averaged over these past two seasons, it's hard to be an elite player with that kind of production because sacks at the end of the day are the gold standard. That's what you want. Uh, a, a given sack is better than a given pressure because, you know, a sack is guaranteed lost yardage. A pressure, you know, a pressure could still be, a productive pass if a quarterback does throw well, even though it does, you know, hamper them at times, cause some interceptions. But one sack is better than one pressure, but pressures and knockdowns are better predictors of future sacks and better indicators of overall performance. Because at the end of the day, you look at look at Aaron Donald, for example. He led the league with, what, 20, 20 and a half sacks last season, and he played about 900 snaps over the course of the season. So those 20 sacks make up about 2% of the snaps he played all season. So it's hard to judge guys just based on their sack totals because it makes up such a small portion of their playing time. It's almost like looking at an NBA player and judging them by how many game-winning shots they make, even though that makes up like five of the 2,000 shots that they might take in a season or over a course of multiple seasons. It's just too small of a sample size to really 
be the, the end-all, be-all in terms of judging a player. It's really important. It's one of the most important things that you want to see, especially from a guy like Williams who was drafted high and, you know, was probably was the guy who could make these big plays. And you do want to see those numbers go up, especially as the Jets hopefully add some more help on the defensive line, maybe with Quinn and Williams or whoever else they may add. If uh, Greg Williams lets him attack more, if they give him more 4-3 looks and, you know, just an overall more aggressive scheme, he will get more opportunities to get those sacks. But look at the way the situation uh, that Leo has been in the past few seasons. He hasn't really had that much help to draw attention away from him. He had Henry Anderson last year, but I think that really last season was an example of Leo drawing a lot of attention and creating opportunities for Henry Anderson, and beyond Henry Anderson, who's a good pass rusher in his own right, the Jets didn't really have anyone else creating on that defensive line. Obviously, we know the edge rush struggles, but even on the defensive line, you had Steve McClendon, who's a good run, who's a good run stuffer and overall good player, but not a guy that teams are really going to key in on. They had Nathan Shepard, who had, you know, really a bad rookie season. He didn't really do much of anything, but at the end of the day, I think you just got to be, you got to look at it even keeled with Leo. He's not an elite player because he's not producing those big plays as much as, as you like him to. He's not lifting up the entire group as much as a superstar player would, like a Fletcher Cox or like an Aaron Donald. But he's also not a bad player because just his ability to produce pressures, which do matter, and produce knockdowns, which do matter, is he's done it at a really borderline elite level. He's consistently been near the top of the league just with his ability to win and beat blockers and produce pressures since he entered the league and really up and up through the 2018 season. So, no, he's not elite. He hasn't produced at an elite level. He does have the chance to, you know, if the situation around him improves. But he's also not a bad player either, and just his production matches up with that. So it's a really interesting case with Leo, the way he's been able to win so much, create so many pressures at really an elite level. Like I said, he's 12th in the league in quarterback knockdowns over the past two seasons, but not really be able to finish those sacks. And I do think it's a combination of partially his own struggles because he has had a lot of opportunities in which – He's just failed to bring the quarterback down. Then his closing speed hasn't been good, uh, been good enough. He just missed a tackle. But he also really hasn't had that many free sacks. You know, uh, Vic Beasley is a great example. He gets compared to Leo Locke because they were in the same draft. But he had, in that 15 sack season or whatever it was uh, in 2016, he only had about the same amount of quarterback knockdowns, which kind of showed you that he was getting, or he was converting his pressures into sacks at an unsustainable rate. And, with the way he's produced over the past couple seasons in which his sack production has gone way, way down, it definitely has turned out to be true. So I think with Leo, you look at a guy who, yes, he struggled in his own right to make those big plays, but at the same time, he's way overdue to, uh, not even with a better situation, but even if he didn't have that, he's just way overdue to get more sacks with the amount of times that he's been winning. So overall, he can't be pegged as an elite player, you know, with his inability to create those sacks and, just be a consistent force because he has had some bad games in which he kind of disappeared. But he is still, a, without a doubt, a very good player, borderline Pro Bowl player every single season since he entered the league. And his production matches up with that. I think a lot of this is luck, Michael, because, yeah, he's had the occasional struggle. But pressures are the best indicators of sacks. And like you said, when you have a guy who's converting almost all of his pressures into sacks, that shows something that is probably unsustainable, as we saw in the case of Vic Beasley. 
And likewise, if you have somebody who's not converting that many of his pressures into sacks, it's probably unsustainable the other way in that he's probably getting fairly unlucky, and eventually you're going to see those sack numbers go up just based on the laws of probability. I compare it to the BABIP stat in baseball, or as they call it, batting average on balls in play. If you have a guy that has an extraordinarily high batting average on balls in play, that means that his numbers are probably inflated and he's due to come down. If you have a guy whose batting average on balls in play is extraordinarily low, that means that his numbers are probably lower than they should be, and they're due to rise because everything kind of evens itself out. And I feel like that's what's going to happen with Leonard Williams at some point. You have all these pressures, and yeah, maybe sometimes his closing speed isn't getting it done. Maybe sometimes he can't grab a guy and finish the job. But when you have that many pressures, the law of averages tells you that eventually it's going to result in more sacks. It may not result in 15 sacks, but it certainly should result in more like 8 to 10 or something like that. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect comparison. And you just look at, like you said, the way, and batting average on balls and plays is a great example. It's just because there's a lot there's a lot of luck involved in getting sacks. A lot of times you get free sacks if, you know, the quarterback rolls out and just gives you a free opportunity or you're playing a guy who eats the ball a lot. You know, there's just a lot of luck involved in getting sacks. And, you know, sacks get the most attention because it is the best result of a pass rush, you know, one sack is better than one pressure because if you sack a quarterback, then it's guaranteed. You knocked him down, they lost yards, their drive is pretty much killed. And if you get a pressure, there's still an opportunity open for the quarterback to throw a touchdown, to complete a pass. Even though a pressure does has been proven to reduce the effectiveness of quarterbacks, and it also could cause an interception or an incompletion or a throwaway, there's the opportunity is still there to make that play happen. So for that reason, sacks are valued higher, you know, especially in the eyes of fans, than pressures are. But pressures are just a better indicator of, you know, future sack success and just overall impact than sacks are because there's so much luck involved in getting those sacks, you know, being handed free opportunities, playing with better talent around you, things that Leonard Williams hasn't really had. And like you said, definitely you have to peg some of it on him because at times his closing speed, and this was kind of a question for him coming out, his closing speed hasn't been enough sometimes. Sometimes he's let quarterbacks get away, fail to convert a good sack opportunity into a sack. He has struggled with that, but he also, just you look at the fact that there's an 84-spot difference in terms of early ranks and quarterback knockdowns and sacks over the past two years. That's just completely insane. So he's definitely due to come up. You know, like you said, he's never going to be Aaron Donald. This is who everyone compares every single defensive tackle to. No one's going to be. He's the best, okay? So with Williams, he's not going to be that. But he could be. You know, he had a seven-sack season a couple of years ago in 2016. He could do that consistently year over year. And I do think he is... You know, he does have to get better on his own just at finishing these sacks because, you know, like we said, there have been times where he has, hasn't done a good job of finishing those sacks. But at the same time, just the way things have played out for him over the past couple of years, he has had a lot of bad luck in terms of the sack column. So I do think that his sack number should improve, you know, this year, hopefully over the next few years, if he stays with the Jets, you know, just with the circumstances around him improving and just, you know, bringing back up, going back up to the mean with the way his numbers have lined up over the past few seasons, bringing that sack number closer to his uh, quarterback knockdown and pressure ranking. But uh, I do think that with Williams at the same time, while you hope that sack number goes up, and I do think it will, at the same time, even if it doesn't, I think you still have to realize that even without that sack number, he's still having a lot of positive impact and is one of the better defensive linemen in the league, definitely in that Pro Bowl, borderline Pro Bowl conversation every single year. 
Yeah, no question. And I don't want to undersell the importance of sacks because if you ever read Nicholas Dowadoff's great book, Collision Low Crossers, and if you haven't and you're a Jets fan, shame on you. Go buy it now. I think you can probably get it on Amazon used for a couple of bucks. Nicholas Dowadoff was on the show actually toward the beginning of this show when we first started out. He was with the 2011 Jets behind the scenes the entire year, and there's some incredible stories. But he talks about the value of sacks and how when a quarterback is sacked, during a drive, that team only scores 8% of the time. And that's because of what you said. You knock the team back so much, it kills a drive. It's the equivalent of getting a major penalty and knocking the team back 10 or 15 yards typically. So I don't want to undersell the value of a sack. However, as you also said, there's plenty more to the impact a defensive lineman can have than sacks. You want to see the sack totals go up with Leonard Williams, but I think that the number of pressures indicate that you're going to start to see some more sacks from him. Again, maybe not 12, 13, 14, anything like that, but you should see 8 to 10. And I think that if he has some more help on this defense, whether it's on the defensive line or at edge rusher, it should help him quite a bit. Because as we know, Michael, at edge rusher, the Jets have been fairly weak over the last couple of years. And you dug up a stat to prove that exact point. Yeah, so the Jets leader in sacks over the past two seasons is Jordan Jenkins, who has ten sacks over the past two years. So he had seven this year. Uh, yeah, he had seven this year and three in 2017. So ten sacks over the past two years. That's a leader for the Jets over those two seasons, and that places Jenkins 63rd in the league over that span. So the Jets don't have anybody who's been in the top 62 of sacks over the past two seasons. So it definitely just kind of you know just shows that the Jets have struggled with the pass rush overall. And, you know, obviously, like, I mean, we've been talking about it a lot in this, over this show, but sacks aren't everything. But the fact that the Jets don't even have one of the top 60 sacks, uh, sack leaders over the past two seasons does, does, does kind of showcase the issues that they have on the edge rush and just with their overall pass rushing production. So it does seem like that this is a position that has a high chance of being the Jets' round one pick this year, so they could get a lot of help. Uh, in that spot, but definitely the Jets do have a lot of issues with that, and they didn't do they didn't do as much in free agency with it as we would have hoped they did. They actually, you know, didn't really do anything with the pass rush other than re-signing Henry Anderson. But they do have an opportunity in round one to get a stud blue chip kind of prospect to hopefully improve this pass rush not only this season but into the future because the Jets obviously don't really have any sort of proven pass rushing production from a sack standpoint. You know, obviously we talked about Leonard Williams and how he's done a pretty good job as a pass rusher, even if the sack column doesn't line up. He's done a good job as a pass rusher, but especially in that edge group, the Jets don't really have any proven production at all. And this is something that most fans know. Even though Jordan Jenkins did have a solid improved season as a pass rusher last year, he had those career high seven sacks. And we talked about it a lot with Leonard Williams, the quarterback hits and how you know, it can show you if whether or not a guy has been lucky or if he actually did improve. And Jenkins did get his knockdown number up last season. He had that career-high seven sacks, and he had 15 quarterback knockdowns as well, which was more than the 12 he had combined over his first two seasons. So Jenkins definitely did improve as a pass rusher last season, but still over the course of 16 games, seven sacks, 15 quarterback knockdowns. And we know what his skill set is. He wasn't drafted to be a pass rusher, really. It's more just the edge setting and the run defense that he brings to the table. He did show some progression, but at the same time, not enough to where it really patches up the need by itself. So hopefully the Jets do get 
you know, address this position, even if not in round one, because I would like to see some offensive line help as well. Uh, that could be a chance, a position they could go for if they trade down, maybe Garrett Fradbury or Jonah Williams. But even if the Jets don't address it round one, just hopefully emphasize the edge rush a little bit more in this draft. And hopefully if they can get back into round two, maybe for third round pick, just emphasize that outside, you know, the edge rushing position more than they have in the past few years. Michael, I think you and I discovered the secret to how the Jets can land a great pass rusher. There's a trait that 100% of the best pass rushers have, and I'm kind of shocked that nobody picked up on this yet. Yeah, and it, it kind of came to mind. A lot of people were you know, talking about Demarcus Lawrence and if he could become available. So it, it just kind of hit me. Von Miller, glasses. Demarcus Lawrence, glasses, you know. Maybe that's just the key here. You got to find the pass rusher who's got those glasses on and his headshot. So uh, maybe Rashawn Gary's that guy. I'm not the hugest Rashawn Gary fan, but he does have those glasses. The glasses going for him. So yeah, maybe it's just the little thing that a lot of people have been missing. We focus on forty times and bench press and sacks and how much bend they have, how much burst they have. Do they have a counter move? All these things, but maybe it's just the glasses. Maybe that's the key for the pass rushing position. Uh, maybe. I need to know now exactly which of these pass rushers wears glasses. I want a report ASAP. I'm going to reach out to Connor Rogers, who's supposed to know everything there is to know about these prospects, and I want him to tell me which of these guys wears glasses because according to my data, Michael, and I know that I'm not as good as you are at finding numbers, but I found this one. 100% of elite pass rushers wear glasses. That's an indisputable fact. Maybe that, but I think it would more be that pass rushers who wear glasses are elite 100% of the time. Not all elite pass rushers wear glasses. I think that's proven, but the pass rushers who do wear glasses have a 100% chance of panning out. I think that is scientifically proven. 100%. You heard it here first, and I can't believe that nobody else is talking about this. It's one of the biggest indicators of pass rushing success, and we've uncovered it. So anytime you hear somebody else talk about this, you remember where you heard it first and give us our proper credit. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Leonard Williams has to wear glasses. I think that's the solution. We talked a lot before, but I think we just skipped over. Give the man some glasses and let him run wild. Greg Williams wears glasses. He can probably show him the best place to go by him. That's it. You know what? I'm going to talk to Daryl Slater, Matt Stivlikowski, Chris Nimbley. They're in the locker room all the time. I'm going to tell them to get this tip to Leonard Williams. He's got to go out and get some glasses. I don't care if his vision is 20-20. Get decorative glasses. It doesn't matter if they're actually used to help you see. Get yourself some glasses and your sack totals will rise, young man. We have to get this word to Leonard Williams through the beat reporter. So I'm going to talk to Nimbley about this in a couple of days. Michael, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Glad we got to do a strong episode of Chronicles of Nania. Gets better and better every week, Michael. You bring your A game, and this week I really enjoyed the fact that you brought a retro stat in the form of the Kenny O'Brien no rushing touchdowns in his entire career stat. That is astounding, but again, if you watch Ken O'Brien play, you can't be that surprised. For those that don't know where to find you and your great work, I know that you're pretty much everywhere. I know that you're doing so many different things. It's hard to keep track. Why don't you go ahead and let people know? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Michael underscore Nania, N-A-N-I-A, and most of my writing is at gangrenation.com and elitesportsnewyork.com. So excited for draft season and the uniforms coming up. Should have a lot of comments on those uh, this Thursday night. So yeah, really excited for what April has in store for the Jets. 
And I'm sure we'll have some uniform statistics and numbers coming up on next week's Chronicles of Nanny as well. Make sure you read Michael at Elite Sports New York at gangrenenation.com. And, of course, follow him on Twitter. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.